Chapter Three, Part H of Greener Than You Think. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore. Chapter Three, Part H. The sowing of the salt went on for weeks, and the grass leaped forward as if to meet it. It raced southward through Long Beach, Seal Beach, and the deserted dunes to Newport and Balboa. It came east in a fury through Puente and Monrovia. Northeastward it moved into Lancaster, Simi, and Piru. Only in its course north did the weeds show a slower pace. By the time we had been forced to leave Pomona for San Bernardino, it had got no farther than Calabasas and Malibu. The westward migration of the American people was abruptly reversed. Those actually displaced by the grass infected others, through whose homes they passed in their flight with their own panic. Land values west of the Rockies dropped to practically nothing, and the rich farms of the Great Plains were worth no more than they had been a hundred years before. People had seen directly, heard over the radio, or read in newspapers of the countless methods vainly used to stop the grass, and there was little confidence in the salt ban succeeding where other devices had failed. True, there were here and there individuals, or whole families, or even entire communities, obstinate enough to scorn flight, but in the opinion of most they were like pig-headedly trustful peasants who cling in the face of all warning to homes on the slopes of an active volcano. It was generally thought the government itself in creating the salt band was making no more than a gesture. Whatever the validity of this pessimism, the work itself was impressive. Viewed from high in the air, only a month after the start, it was already visible. After two months, it was a thick, glistening river, winding over mountain, desert, and what had been green fields, a white, crystalline barrier behind which the country waited nervously. When the salt had been first proposed, batches had been dumped in proximity to the grass, but the quantity had been too small to demonstrate any conclusion, and observers had been immediately driven from the scene of the experiments by the grass. Nevertheless, the very inconclusiveness of these trials confirmed the doubts of the waiting country as the narrow gap before the salt was closed and the weed rolled to it near Capistrano. I would like to think of the meeting as dramatic, heightened by inaudible drum rolls and flashes of invisible lightning. Actually, the conflict was pedestrian. Manipulated once more by my tyrant, I was stationed, like other reporters and radio men, in a captive balloon. For the utmost, in discomfort and lack of dignity, let me recommend this ludicrous invention. Cramped, sea-sickened, inconvenienced, I don't like to mention this, but provisions for answering the calls of nature were, to say the least, inadequate. I swayed and rocked in that inconsiderable basket, chilled, blinded by the dazzle of the salt, knocked about by gusts of irresponsible wind, and generally disgusted by the uselessness of my pursuit. A telescope to the eye and constant radio reports from shuttling planes told of the approaching grass, but under the circumstances weariness rather than excitement or anxiety was the prevailing emotion. At last the collision came. The long runners, curiously flat from the air, pushed their way ahead. The salt seemed no more to them than bare ground, concrete, vegetation, or any of the hundred obstacles they had traveled. Unstutteringly, the vine-like stolons went forward. 
A foot, two, six, ten. No recoil, no hesitation, no recognition they were traversing a wall erected against them. Behind these first outposts, the higher growth came on, and still farther off the great bulk itself reared skyward, blotting out the horizon behind, threatening, inexhaustible. It seemed to prod its precursors, to demand hungrily ever more and more room to expand. But the creeping of the runners over the first few feet of salt dwindled to a stop. This caused experienced observers like myself no elation. We had seen it happen many times before at the encountering of any novel obstacle, and its only effect had been to make the weed change its tactics in order to overcome the obstruction as it did now. A second rank moved forward on top of the halted first, a third upon the second, and so on, till a living wall frowned down upon the salt, throwing its shadow across it for hundreds of ominous yards. It towered erect, and then, repeating the tactic invariably successful, it toppled forward to create a bridgehead from which to launch new assaults. The next day new stolons emerged from the mass, but now, for the first time, excitement seized us up in our bobbing post of observation. Not only were the new runners visibly shorter in length, but they crept forward more slowly, haltingly, as though hurt. This impression was generally discredited. People were surfeited with optimism. They felt our reports were wishful thinking. Their pessimism seemed to be confirmed when the weed repeated its action of the day before, falling ahead of itself upon the salt, and few took stock in our excited announcements that the grass had covered only half the previous distance. Again the probing fingers poked out, again the reserves piled up, again the mass fell. But it fell far short of a normal leap. There could no longer be any doubt about it. The advance had been slowed, almost stopped. The salt was working. Everywhere along the entire band the story was the same. The grass rushed confidently in, bit off great chunks, then smaller, then smaller, until its movement ceased entirely. That part which embedded itself in the salt lost the dazzling green color so characteristic and turned piebald, from dirty gray through brown and yellow, an appearance so familiar in its normal counterpart on lawns and vacant lots. The encircled area filled up and choked with the balked weed. Time after time it essayed the deadly band, only to be thwarted. The glistening fortification, hardly battered, stood triumphant, imprisoning the invader within. Commentators in trembling voices broke the joyful news over every receiving set, and even the stodgiest newspapers brought out their blackest type to announce, Grass Stopped. The President of the United States, as befitted a farmer knowing something of grasses on his own account, issued a proclamation of thanksgiving for the end of the peril which had beset the country. The stock market recovered from funereal depths and jumped upward. In all the great city's hysterical rapture so heated the blood of the people that all restraints withered. In frantic joy, women were raped in the streets, dozens of banks were looted, Thousands of plate-glass windows were smashed, while millions of celebrants wept tears of eighty-six-proof ecstasy. Torn ticker-tapes made Broadway impassable, and the smallest whistle-stops spontaneously revived the old custom of uprooting outhouses and perching them on the church steeple.
I had my own particular reason to rejoice coincident with the stoppage of the grass. It was so unreal, so dreamlike, that for many days I had trouble convincing myself of its actuality. It began with a series of agitated telephone messages from a firm of stockbrokers, asking for my immediate presence, which, because of my assignments, failed to reach me for some time. So engrossed was I in the events surrounding the victory over the grass, I could not conceive why any broker would want to see me, and so put off my visit several times, till the urgency of the calls began to pique my curiosity. The man who greeted me was Runcible, with little strands of sickly hair twisted mopwise over his bald head. His striped suit was rumpled, the collar of his shirt was wrinkled, and dots of perspiration stood out in his upper lip and forehead. "'Mr. Weiner?' he asked. "'Oh, thank God! Thank God!' Completely at a loss, I followed him into his private office. "'You recall commissioning us, when we were located in Pomona, to purchase some shares of consolidated pemmican and allied concentrates for your account?' "'To tell the truth,' While I had not forgotten the event, I had been sufficiently ashamed of my rashness to have pushed all recollection of the transaction to the back of my mind. But I nodded confirmingly. No doubt you would be willing to sell at a handsome profit. Aha, I thought. The rise of the market has sent consolidated pemmican up for once beyond its usual one-eighth. I am probably a rich man, and this fellow wants to cheat me of the fruits of my foresight. You bought the stock outright? Of course, Mr. Weiner, he affirmed in a hurt tone. Good, then I will take immediate delivery. He pulled out a handkerchief and wiped his lip and forehead with evident inefficiency, for the perspiration either remained or started afresh. Mr. Weiner, he said, I am authorized to offer you six times. Six times,' he echoed impressively, "'the amount of your original investment. "'This is an amazing return.' "'If it was worth it to him, it was worth it to me. "'I will take immediate delivery,' I repeated firmly. "'And no brokerage fees involved,' he added, "'as one making an unbelievable concession.' "'I shook my head. "'Mr. Weiner,' he said, I have been empowered to make you an incredible tender for your stock. Not only will the board of directors of Consolidated Pemmican return to you six times the amount of your investment, but they will assign to you, over and above this price, 49% of the company's voting stock. It is a magnificent and unparalleled bid, and I sincerely advise you to take it. I pressed my palms into the back of the chair. I... Albert Weiner was a capitalist. The money involved already seemed negligible, for it was a mere matter of a few thousand dollars, but to own what amounted to a controlling interest, even in a defunct or somnolent corporation, made me an important person. Only a reflex made me gasp, I will take immediate delivery. The broker dropped his hands against his thighs. Mr. Weiner... You are an acute man. Mr. Weiner. I must confess the truth. You have bought more shares of consolidated pemmican than there are in existence. You not only own the firm lock, stock, and barrel, but you owe yourself money. He gave a weak laugh. Above and beyond this, Mr. Weiner, 
through an unfortunate series of events due to the confusion of the times without it such an absurd situation would never have occurred several people our own firm our new york correspondents and the present heads of consolidated pemmican are liable to prosecution by the securities exchange commission we can only throw ourselves on your mercy i waved this aside magnanimously where is my property located well i believe consolidated pemmican has an office in new york yes but the factory the works where is the product made strictly speaking i understand active operations seized back in nineteen nineteen however there is a plant somewhere in new jersey i think i'll look it up for you my dream of wealth began fading as the whole situation became clear and suspicions implicit in the peculiar behavior of the stock were confirmed the corporation had evidently fallen into the hands of unscrupulous promoters who manipulated for the small but steady take its fluctuations on the market afforded without attempting to operate the factory my reasoning ran they had taken advantage of the stock's low price to double whatever they cared to invest twice yearly it was a neat and well-shaped little racket and discovery as the broker admitted would have exposed them to legal action only my recklessness with the checks from the weekly ruminant and the honeycomb had broken the routine but they had offered me several thousand dollars evidently in cold cash defunct or not then the business was presumably worth at least that and if they had employed the stock to maintain some sort of income why i could certainly learn to do the same i was an independent man after all except for the slightly embarrassing detail of being without current funds i was also free of la facetie and a daily intelligencer mr blank i said i need some money for immediate expenses i knew you'd see things in a sensible light wiener i'll have your check in a minute you misunderstand me i have no intention of giving up any part of consolidated pemmican ah no he looked at me intently mr wiener i am not a wealthy man above and beyond that since this grass business started i assure you any common laborer has made more money than i any common laborer he repeated sadly oh i only need about a thousand dollars for immediate outlays just write me a check for that much like a good fellow mr weiner how can we be sure you won't call upon us again for more uh expense money i drew myself up indignantly mr blank no one has ever questioned my integrity before when i say a thousand dollars is all the expense money i require why it is all the expense money i require to doubt it is to insult me ah he said ah i agreed reluctantly he wrote the check and handed it to me then more amicably we settled the details of the stock transfer and he gave me the location of my property i went back to the intelligencer office with the springy step of a man who acknowledges no master in my mind i prepared a triumph i would wait even if it took days for the first bullying word from la Facetie, and then i would magnificently fling my resignation in his face 
When the grass was thought to be invincible, Miss Frances, as the discoverer of the compound which started it on its course, was the recipient of a universal, if grudging, respect. Those whom the grass had made homeless hated her, and would have overcome their natural feeling of protection towards a woman sufficiently to lynch her if they could. Men like Senator Jones instinctively disliked her. Others, like Dr. Johnson, detested her. But no one thought of her lightly, even when they glibly coupled the word nut with her name. When it was found the salt band worked, Miss Frances immediately became the butt of all the ridicule and contumely which could be heaped upon her head. What could you expect of a woman who meddled with things outside her province? Since she had asserted the grass would absorb everything, its failure to absorb the salt proved beyond all doubt she was an ignoramus, a dangerous charlatan, and a crazy woman, better locked up, who had destroyed Southern California to her own obscure benefit. The victory over the grass became a victory over Miss Frances. Of the ordinary gum-chewing, movie-going man in the street over the pretentious highbrow, she was ignominiously ejected from her chicken-house laboratory on the ground that it was more needed for its original use, and she was jeered at in every vehicle of public expression. In spite of my natural chivalry, I cannot say I pitied her in her fall, which she took with an unbecoming humility, amounting to arrogance. It was amazing how quickly viewpoints returned to an apparent normality as soon as the grass stopped at the salt band. That it still existed, in undisputed possession of nearly all Southern California, after dispersing and scattering millions of people all over the country, disturbing by its very being a large part of the national economy, was only something read in newspapers, an accepted fact to be pushed into the farthest background of awareness now the immediate threat was gone. The Salt Patrol, vigilant for erosions or leachings, a select corps, was alert night and day to keep the saline wall intact. The general attitude, if it concerned itself at all with the events of the past half-year, looked upon it merely as one of those setbacks periodically afflicting the country like depressions, epidemics, floods, earthquakes, or other man-made or natural misfortunes. The United States had been a great nation when Los Angeles was a pueblo of 5,000 people. The movies could set up business elsewhere. Iowans find another spot for senescence. The country go on much as usual. One of the first results of the defeat of the grass was the building, almost overnight it seemed, of a great city on the east bank of the Salton Sea. Displaced realtors from the metropolis found the surrounding mountains ideally suited for subdivision, and laid out romantically named suburbs large enough to contain the entire population of California before the site of the city had been completely surveyed. Beyond their claims, the memorial parks, columbariums, homes of eternal rest, and Elysian lawns offered choice lots, with a special discount on caskets, on the installment plan. Magnificent brochures were printed, a skeletal biographical dictionary, five dollars for notice, fifty dollars for a portrait planned, advertisements in leading magazines urged the migration of industry, contented labor and all local taxes remitted for ten years. These essential preliminaries accomplished, the city itself was laid out, water mains installed, and paving and grading begun. It was no great feat to divert the now aimless Colorado River aqueduct to the site, nor to erect thousands of prefabricated houses. The climate was declared to be unequaled, salubrious, equable, pleasant, and bracing. Factories were erected, airports laid out, 
hospitals, prisons, and insane asylums built. The Imperial and Coachella Valleys shipped their products in at low cost, and as a gesture to those who might suffer from homesickness, it was called New Los Angeles. Perhaps in relief from the fear and despair so recently dispelled, New Los Angeles began to boom from the moment the mayor first handed the key to a passing distinguished visitor. It grew and spread as the grass had grown and spread. The embryonic skeletons of its unborn skyline rivaled the height of the green mass now triumphant in its namesake, presenting, as news photographers were quick to see, an aspect from the West not entirely dissimilar to Manhattan's. To New Los Angeles, of course, the daily intelligencer moved as soon as a tent large enough to house its presses could be set up. But I did not move with it. For some reason, perhaps intuitively forewarned of my intention, Lefasasi never gave me the opportunity to humiliate him as I planned. On the contrary, I received from him a few days before the paper's removal a silly and characteristic note. Since the freak grass has been stopped, it seems indicated other abnormalities be terminated also. Your usefulness to this paper, always debatable, is now clearly at an end. As of this moment, your putative services will be no longer required. W.R.L. Bitter vexation came over me at having lost the opportunity to give this bully a piece of my mind, and my impulse was to go immediately to his office and tell him I scorned his petty paycheck. But I reflected, a man of his nature would merely find some tricky way of turning the interview to his malicious satisfaction and he would know soon enough it was the paper which was suffering a loss, and not I. I started next morning and drove eastward toward my property, quite satisfied to leave behind forever the scenes of my early struggles. The West had given me only petty irritations. In the East, with its older culture and higher level of intelligence, I looked forward to having my worth appreciated. End of chapter 3